Hello everyone. My name is Marion Rackard and I'm a co-founder of Silent Voices, a campaign led by Alcohol Action Ireland, which began in January 2019 to raise awareness and bring the voices of children and adult children impacted by parental problem alcohol use into the public domain. My fellow co-founders are Carol Fawcett and Barbara Whelan, and each of us was raised in a family where alcohol played a dominant role in family relationships. Just to mention that in the 2019-2020 Irish National Drug and Alcohol Survey, it found that the prevalence of alcohol use disorder in the general population was found to be 14.8%, corresponding to one in every seven adults in Ireland, or half over half a million. And it's estimated that there are 200,000 children under the age of 18 years of age who are impacted by parental problem drinking and 400,000 adults impacted also. So that in total is 600,000. I am really delighted to welcome you all to this podcast, which is supported by Addiction Counselors of Ireland, the Irish Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy, and Alcohol Action Ireland. I also welcome my colleagues from the Irish Association of Humanistic and Integrative Psychotherapists and from other accrediting bodies. I'm sure you would all agree that this is not an easy subject to discuss. And as we begin our conversation, we might advise that you, our audience, is aware and takes care of your own needs, be it for short breaks during the two podcasts, to ground yourselves and to notice what may be happening for you as you listen, especially as many of you may have grown up with parental problem alcohol use. The first podcast will explore Dr. Stephanie Brown's work as someone who was a leader in introducing the concept of adult children of alcoholics in the United States. And she will discuss her own background and personal motivation, as well as the book she wrote, on treating adult children of alcoholics and will outline the specific distinguishing characteristics of adult children of alcoholics. The second podcast will look at the process of therapy in working with adult children of alcoholics and the developmental model from childhood to adulthood. I would like to acknowledge the shared voices which many members of the public have so generously submitted to the Shared Voices section of the Alcohol Action Ireland Silent Voices website, which I will be threading through our conversation to help to ground us in the realities of this issue. I would now like to introduce you to our special guest, Dr. Stephanie Brown, licensed psychologist and director of the Addictions Institute um, in San Francisco. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Marion. It's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful to be able to join you this morning. We have a pretty long history now, which is, has been terrific. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. We, we so much appreciate it, and especially for you offering your time to us for two 40-minute podcasts on the therapeutic aspects of working with adult children, as well as being our guest speaker at our webinar on the 18th of October for the general public on the topic of parental problem alcohol use, living and coping with a legacy of trauma, for which we are enormously grateful, Stephanie. So my first question to you would be um, your work at, you know, at the Addiction Institute in Menlo Park, which 
integrates family systems and developmental perspectives to to understand childhood and adult difficulties related to addiction and recovery. Could you tell us a little bit about that work that 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 you have been doing over many many years i i would be glad to uh let me let me preface that that explanation with um keys to to thinking about how i think uh, which are so important for the integration that I'm all about. Also, the the Addictions Institute, its birth in Menlo Park. The San Francisco extension is relatively new. I uh, started the Addictions Institute in Menlo Park in 1989 after I had been at Stanford for uh, 10 years through the 70s, and it was at Stanford Department of Psychiatry that I was uh, able to begin the program for adult children of alcoholics. That was the start, and we started a group psychotherapy program there, which is the basis of the work, the book, all of that work I was doing before I started the Addictions Institute. So I want to clarify the timeline, which to me seems so important. Uh, my basic fundamental core is a developmental model, child development, adolescent, adult, the whole sense of human life cycle and human lifespan, attachment, which, which allows an interpersonal understanding of who we are. Uh, the relationship aspect of that. My work is long-term, therefore also process-modeled and multiple variables always. Now, you all will probably recognize immediately that that clashed with the push toward greater and greater precision reduction uh, outcome studies And so I have been, in a sense, an outlier all of these decades now, as I have stayed within the multiple frameworks and the multiple variables and looking at process. Very important to understand the long term. Uh, The Addictions Institute is based on an independent contractor model. It's a private practice model, and our private practice is a very major form of service uh, here. And, you know, it varies in terms of what's possible for fees and who can access this treatment, but it's very valuable. And what's so valuable for the clinician and any kind of patient, but especially when people will need an open-ended, long-term perspective so that they really will be able to deal with the issues of attachment, the issues of imitation, identification, all the developmental processes that may have occurred with alcohol uh, as part of their experience. But the long term lets people grow into a sense of safety. Many other kinds of services, sadly, here uh, in the States are time limited and that really changes what's possible. So we, I, I brought the model that I built at Stanford through the research that we were doing on the group therapy. I brought that to an outpatient psychotherapy setting. And that 
uh, that has just been extraordinarily powerful, beneficial. Uh, I'm still leading what was the original group that I began at Stanford with uh, Tim Cermak. You may know him. The same people aren't in it at this point, but the long term and the evolution of a developmental process and what can change is really clear in this model. That sounds very, very much uh, in opposition to uh, funders, doesn't it, in terms of, you know, the therapeutic positives for for long term therapy versus the short term that you mentioned. Right. Right. How did you negotiate that long-term therapy work? Did you use your research? How did you convince funders to provide that model? And are people, as you know, from disadvantaged backgrounds, are they eligible to avail of that long-term therapy? Well, it all depends. And it, it didn't have a funding model. I mean, you may be talking about insurance, yes, which is is is, is how what we call it here, funders would be uh, foundations or grants where people would, I mean, where, where the government or private foundations would have an interest and give money. I had a big training grant and the long-term model then in 19, in the 1970s, that 1973, 1977 was when I started the alcohol clinic at Stanford. I had finished my doctorate. Uh, that was long-term therapy was was the the model at that point. So fortunately, I didn't have to convince anybody about the the benefits of that model at that point in time. The short the short-term model and and all you know the reduction point of view came later in the eighties and nineties. It still exists, but there was a lot of understanding about the benefits and the the. Group therapy model. I was invited by Irvin Yalom. You all probably know of him. He's, he was the yes. master and still considered of group psychotherapy. So I just was so fortunate. I was already in my own recovery, uh, from alcoholism and an ACA myself. And he found me in the community. I was working on my master's at that point in the early seventies. He found me and, and Stanford received a government grant to do all kinds of studies on alcoholism. The word addiction then was not as prevalent to cover all the aspects. So he found me and and, and asked me to work with him on a group therapy, long-term group therapy project. And that that had such an influence on shaping the rest of my career to this day, how I think and the interpersonal. So that was very, very fortunate. Well, uh, certainly, uh, Stephanie, I think in reading your book, Treating Adult Children of Alcoholics, a developmental perspective, one can see the benefit over time of the group members and the various issues that they were dealing with and um, the recovery process. So I can really see the benefit of that. Um, it's just unfortunate that we live, as you say, uh, in, in an era where everything is about six to eight sessions and move along. But this often does not work, uh, especially where the issue of, as one one colleague of mine described it, that he- heavy or dependent use of alcohol um, in a family 
to use an IT term, members have had their software program corrupted over years, even though they appear perfectly normal to the outside world. So the role of therapy is to somehow support people to repair that software. And I suppose our aim in this conversation today is to explore that inner world of the ACA and to demonstrate the power of therapy in supporting them to become their own person. So I really get a sense that that is your preferred model. And, you know, I, I suppose we're very conscious here in Ireland as elsewhere in relation to the adverse childhood experiences that's gaining traction with Gabor Mate's work and also your your impact of interpersonal trauma and self-development model as well. So there is so much there that requires long-term therapy work. And I suppose we'll move along just a little bit, if you don't mind. And maybe I just want to clarify for our audience, because we're talking a lot of different words, Stephanie. We're talking about alcoholism. We're talking about addiction. We're talking about problem parental problem alcohol use. So I would just like to clarify for the audience what we're really talking about. And this is where you and I have had some discussion on this. But just to clarify that Silent Voices names the issue as parental problem alcohol use and refers to a spectrum of behaviours, including addiction, which can affect other people. And the main reason for that is that there is evidence that parental non-dependent substance misuse impacts upon children. But the use of the term alcoholic is used in this podcast as it is still a common term in the United States and in Ireland, referring to those who are addicted to alcohol. So, you know, we, we're moving back and forth. But I just want to emphasize the fact that here in terms of silent voices, we really see that, you know, uh, drunkenness and um you know, in front of children can often be a very frightening experience and the, the person doesn't have to be dependent for that to affect the child. And I suppose just moving in a little bit on, I should mention that in an online poll at an IACP Addiction Counselors Ireland, an AAI event last year on addiction topics, at which 800 counsellors attended, more than half of the respondents said they were an adult child of a parent or other family member who had been affected by their alcohol or drug dependency, with nearly a third saying that their life was significantly affected by this experience. So recognising this, we should just ask that, you know, you do take time to reflect what happens for you during the podcast and to, gent to gently support yourself. So I suppose, Stephanie, getting back to your work and, you know, the the book and so on. Um, I, I would just like to ask a second question, which is if you were to describe for our audience, um, what are this, the distinguishing characteristics of people who've been raised by parents with alcohol problems as distinct from those raised in some other type of household or even in a normal household? Well, this is where I have to start with the, the, the clarification about what are the characteristics. There are a number of lists about this is who we are or we uh, adult children of alcoholics, now adult children of trauma often share these aspects in common. And I tend almost from the beginning to challenge that notion we all share anything so clearly, I think we. I start with the global. Uh, what was your childhood experience with parental drinking? Uh, and how do you feel about it, think about it? 
And from that point, that's the similarity. I'm an ACA or I'm, I'm the child of a mother who took pills. Actually, we have much broader range of what fits into, into the uh, alcoholic range. But from that point on, I'm going to also be open to variability so that the individual who already is able to identify as coming from that childhood experience, that individual then can begin to take in from a list perhaps, or from the sense of shared experience with peers in a therapy group, for example, in a 12-step meeting or another kind of shared meeting, people will begin to become more and more open to be able to recognize and say, oh yes, that's me. I did that, or I had that, or I come from that. So the shared experience is, you know, is really a tricky question. Now, with that said, trauma characteristics, uh, and these spread again across many domains, but children will grow up perhaps tuned, one, one, one uh, adaptation tuned out, not recognizing anything, trying to hide themselves. They will grow up trying to avoid. Another kind of adaptation is, uh, sadly, or experience is the hypervigilance. Something is going to happen here and it's not going to be good. So much depends on whether denial rules or it's possible to be able to talk with anybody else in the family. There are just so many differences as well as the commonalities. But as P- as ACAs come together, they recognize and four key elements showed up in our first group in 1978 and to this day remain true. And I we add a fifth these days, but that is denial. And the and denial is not a single entity. It also is a process with levels from minimal to extreme blocking out all awareness. And people will uh, locate where they are in it. What could they know? What couldn't they know? And there will be differences among ACAs. And then denial control. You must all recognize that one. The the need, uh, the the fear of others. And along with that one is, is mistrust, distrust. But control is such a central uh, defense uh, as well as a characteristic. Uh, I need to protect myself. Uh, nobody else will. That kind of mistrust in humans, mistrust in others, and that goes well into adulthood and trying to, trying to really find relationships. And the other two, all or none thinking, which is a huge problem in the culture, huge problem. Uh, we want to have a, a definite, certain answer about things. We want to be on the good, not the bad. We want to be figure out the yes and the win. And that, so it's kind of black and white and no gray kind of thing. That's right. Yep. That's mm-hmm. right. And, um, and that, that remains... Uh, locked in the fear of the gray is such a central point through the process of a lot of therapeutic work that because in order like to have you know to have an open dialogue with someone the reciprocity that is really a key part of intimate relationship 
uh, of all kinds of relationship. The back and forth requires an openness to not know, to turn over the floor, to not know what the other will come back with. So you watch a tremendous amount of control in relationship. Now, the last piece is this overriding sense of responsibility. I worked early on in the first years uh, in this one of the first groups, uh, and a man would come in shaking. He shook in his adult life as he talked about his experiences. He said, I carry such a feeling that if there's a cyclone in Bangladesh, I caused it, mm-hmm. and I have to fix it somehow. So that that's a... That's a really stark example. It is a stark example. And Stephanie, if you, if you don't mind, just for a moment, I might bring in a little story from our children's thread or from the adult's thread uh, that I mentioned earlier. Um, just what, what one voice says, there was chaos in our household. Once or twice this involved violent altercations. My younger sister and I were witness to constant verbal arguments between all family members and sometimes physical fights. When our parents drank, we were left to our own devices. From a very early age, we had to assume total responsibility to feed ourselves, manage finances, manage chaotic parents, get to school. We didn't go off the rails and were good, polite children who applied ourselves at school and made sure we were clean and well-dressed. I think this gave others in our family and elsewhere an impression that we were fine. So I think a lot of what you're saying there, um, Stephanie, is really tied up in this story, isn't it? It is, it is absolutely. And how I appreciate your experiences bringing these uh, st- shared stories. And they are part of the experience. This person is talking about drinking. Mm-hmm. And that's another part of that, that adult child of drinking, of, uh, of alcoholism, that can be so shared. This is what it was like for me as pa- I parent parents drank. Uh, I really appreciate that. And those and those stories are similar to the to what we've heard for for forty years. Yes, once people could name it. Yes, yes, and and I think that's it's very very frightening for people to name this or to become aware of that. And I was I was thinking back myself to you know reading some of the early ACA work in you know back in say the eighties and nineties, and actually you know when I saw that list as you said. It was quite overwhelming and it was really hard to take in. And I just blanked it because I didn't want to take on board all of those different things, believing, oh, my goodness, you know, if I go near those, I'll, I'll take every box or I won't take every box, whatever. Wow. But, but it is quite overwhelming to see that list, isn't it, for, for people? It, I think it, it's overwhelming. And it, if you're just beginning to recognize the realities of your life Mm -hmm. and the realities of the drinking, then that list is very overwhelming. It also, it may, as it did for me, ignite my reluctance to say, I've got all those things. I don't think I do. I never did. And I also, I had a reluctance to 
join in at that point and again still about we all share these characteristics because we don't. It's it, We have some of them. It's like any other 20 questions for addiction or there will be some. Some people will, will check off five or six and some will check off 18 out of 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that... To begin with, we all share this. It may unite some people who are quite ready to share, but for others, I think it, it can tend to narrow the openness that is just beginning. Yes. yes. Who am I? Who am I? And it, your example is beautiful. You had to shut it yes. out yes. a bit. And but it's it's that denial of of what's happening to oneself as well that that can be there right through all the stages of development, particularly the teens and early twenties. But we'll get to that a little bit later. But getting to um, I suppose Stephanie, you've made reference to the fact that you grew up in a family where your mom took pills and that you also developed your own dependence on alcohol and that you're an ACA yourself. Could you tell us a little bit about that, please? Oh, thank you for asking that. Uh, it's a privilege. Actually, my mom didn't take pills. I, that was a, they, my mom and my dad drank together. And so both of them were alcoholic. And the, my experience then was that my, from my birth and my brother, we are four for four as alcohol alcoholics and i think that knowledge and the extreme nature of my father's alcoholism he was a severe alcoholic as well as uh, an executive and that juxtaposition the, uh, from a very young age this just didn't make sense to me his severe illness as i saw it then i thought something and both of my parents were really good people, even though with alcohol on board, there was tremendous violence and anger and you just, I could just see it. So I had, I had this sense as a young child, but my learning from the learning perspective of child development, my learning, I didn't have any other exposure except chronic severe alcoholism. And I, started to feel a lot of anxiety as I entered high school. Uh, uh, when, when would I become so debilitated? Would I have to? Would I need to? And so, and my brother as well. Uh, both of us are in recovery now and have been for decades. Neither of my parents got to recovery, uh, which is sad, but I was fortunate I was fortunate in my twenties um, to be able to, I mean, to be able to find recovery. That was wonderful. Uh, how did you find recovery? Uh, you know, because in your in your twenties, you know, that's the fun time of life uh, supposed to be. How did you literally somehow listen to 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 sound advice to do something about your drinking? Well, I didn't. Nobody advised me, Marion. Okay. No one. No one ever. My parents' circle and then the circle that I, social circle, close intimate circle that I created, it was mixed. You know, I, I, I was fortunate 
that I had, you know, as one of the positive factors was education for me. And, you know, I had, uh, you know, educated circle. Uh, I had good schooling and I always loved school. And that was such a fabulous protective factor for me coming from such an extreme situation. But I hid, I hid my drinking as much as I could. And I tried to be that successful golden girl that I was born to be. I was the youngest child, but became the center of the family to save everyone. And, and one of the things that I was thinking about in this, you know, uh, before we talk today, how can I save the world and need alcohol so badly? I just needed it. I knew it. I was terrified. And I, I became a severe alcoholic. First, first drink in high school, college then, and alcoholic first marriage. It was really just replicating what I had lived with and grown up. Fortunately, I had a mental breakdown. And that was what saved me. No one ever, ever complained about my drinking. I, I did a good job uh, with a great false self and that side of me that could cover it well. But anxiety helped me just collapse in a sense. And we used to call it a nervous breakdown, not anymore. Uh, but uh, But I... I sought help for myself, and I had to actually beg the helpers, the therapists then. This is in 1970. I was uh, 25, I guess then. I had to beg them to listen to the fact about my drinking, that I really, I thought I that I had a problem. I thought I came from an alcoholic family. It started to just pour out of me. And my helpers then, and many helpers that I work with, and a lot of people I've been training all of these years, they don't want to accept that it's really a problem to the degree, to the degree that I was describing it. I needed someone to allow me to recognize my alcoholism. Yes. People, they didn't want to. Wow. And, and the fact that you were also an ACA. That's, well, AC, right. And ACA was not a, a, a label or a recognized anything in 1970. There was research, there was scientific research, mostly coming from Eastern Europe at that time in the 1940s. So the, the, the label children of alcoholics was established, but not as in the way that we were able to label it and bring clinical knowledge, research, and all the work that we've brought to the ACA label uh, since then. And I think it's had an enormous impact on addiction and also uh, mental health. It's the bridge, it, the bridge between those disciplines and the trauma that also has been recognized greatly in the last 40 years. Thank you very much for that, Stephanie, because it really gives us a sense of the desperation of a young woman, but also somewhere a spark of energy and delight at being able to excel at your academic work and somehow needing and wanting to get back to that. But what you had to encounter in terms of opposition or lack of 
support to enable you to do what you did was was remarkable. I read a book one time. It was a, a New York bestseller called Smashed. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Uh, it's it's about the life of a young um, graduate through her alcoholism and. It's it's really really interesting uh, in terms of the the absolute chronic level of student drinking in in the states and and where it led. But if I can just maybe bring another voice in here because our time is is moving along. But just to 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 join with you in what you're telling us there. There's another voice here that's saying, when I was in my late teens, I developed anxiety depression. I remember telling the doctor in detail about what I was going through at home. He offered me medication and a referral to a social worker. After a number of meetings, the social worker took a detailed record of my story and what was going on. And I was told that I was too old and that the adoption agency would not get involved at this stage. Nothing further came from meetings with the social worker. I spoke with my secondary school and they provided me with some counselling and other support. I kept telling everyone that what I needed was to get out of there, but there was nothing anyone could do. I took a long time for that to sink in. The services had completely missed me. So I'm just illustrating that, Stephanie, as a way of of knowing that that there are thousands of, of young people who are just missed in terms of you know the both the ACA experience, but also their their substance use and their their the problems associated with that. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Wow. Thanks to that uh, woman for sharing. Yes, it, it that is. might be a bigger a bigger portion of people who are suffering than those who find the reality, are able to name it, who in in essence find some way that they can recognize what's happening for them. Uh, more and more people do. However, that inclination to wish it weren't so, to not want, it, 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 from here, it's people do not want to face the uh, the idea that somebody is addicted, that the domestic violence, that the the silent home, the desperate, desperate. I'm glad you used that word in response to me. I was desperate. You would never have known it. That's what's really key. I was not desperate. I was doing really well, busy being the family golden girl. Yes, the cheerleader. Yeah, exactly. I was a I was a pom pom girl, Marian. Uh-huh. <laughs> I could imagine that. <laughs> I was also in theater. I was also in theater, which fits right. Because you, I was in theater, and uh, so the the desperation and those. Uh, who are missed, those who never get any kind of help. And then when someone is called or, or when a child or an ACA is able to speak, the, often the helpers, they don't know enough, they don't want to see it, or it threatens their own experience and their own use. It, would, it may threaten what they lived with, because in so many societies and in the United States, drinking is a right it's an entitlement and a privilege, and we don't want anybody to, to say anything or, or help someone that might acknowledge the need for, for help in that regard. 
Oh, you you so eloquently there identify the barriers to um, somebody being able to speak. And that's why our, our the name of our campaign is Silent Voices, because we've got to try and bring those voices to the public. We've got to let the alcohol industry and I suppose our culture know that there's an underlying section of our population that is suffering greatly in this silence. Stephanie, um, there are many parallels in, in our backgrounds in that both of us grew up in alcohol family systems and subsequently forged careers in the addiction field in diverse ways. I trained as an addiction counsellor and psychotherapist working in prevention, treatment and, and subsequently in an adult psychotherapy service dealing with early childhood trauma. I felt drawn to the work as my father had had treatment for his alcohol dependency at, at 47 years old and followed by six years in recovery and had gained insights which he was trying to pass on to other alcoholics. But sadly, he died at 53 due to the onset of throat cancer, having had six years of recovery from years of dependent drinking. But his efforts to help other alcoholics left an indelible impression on me. But I suppose the main motivation for me starting out was the needless loss of his life, which was the strongest message that I held as I began my working life. And it was the main motivation for my work together with the focus on understanding the needless destructive patterns of behavior which impacts all fam alcohol family systems. So going back to your story, um, Stephanie, you mentioned about, um, I'm just to have the image of the young girl in her mid-twenties and you'd had treatment and you, you tried to convince people um, of the seriousness of your situation. So where, where did things go from there, Stephanie? Oh, thank you. And thank you for your story, Marion. It's, it's very touching. And that's, you know, that's the connection. Instant. Oh, wow. Uh, I understand your experience that we share. For also, there was no treatment. Here, treatment today means what's also sadly called rehab. Uh, there was no addiction field in the 1970s. That field wasn't born really till the 80s, 90s as a separate field. So my, to quote, treatment, because I don't consider that I had treatment. I begged for therapy to talk to somebody so it I could, I could begin to speak. And I saw a psychiatrist. Everything was through mental health. I quickly realized, and from that point on, I realized as I got my doctorate in psychology, that the mental health field did not understand this experience of addiction, of alcoholism, of what it was like to grow up. And that's what really spurred my mission. I'm, I'm in recovery already. And all the people that were available to work with me in psychotherapy uh, did not understand alcoholism. That must have been very difficult. It was difficult. And I'm not going down that road, but, but that really to understand my motivation to write and to be academic. I has been, I was at Stanford's during this time and all of that was wonderful. And to ask why I've needed to do that. And that was one of the blessings I, the 
I got to. I got to ask why in my doctoral work to describe what happens to bring to light in a field that really scorned the alcoholic and still does. And I, you know, and another part of that story is, is how people received me professionally in various quarters and the difficulties that I had with acceptance. But my mission and in my writing was to write, uh, to do solid research and to write well, you know, to work at that level so that um, the work could be at least accepted, understood. People could then reject it or or take it in as they as they were able. What a talent that enabled you to do that. That 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 was fantastic, and and that led to the writing of the book and the 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 analysis of of all the material that you were observing. It was like a laboratory, <laughs> both your own experience and your client's experience. Stephanie, thank you so much for that and to lead us to this point because we're moving now into the whole process of therapy and understanding recovery as far as the adult child is is concerned. So we might conclude there this part of this first podcast and we'll move to the second one just shortly. Mm -hmm.